Father, whether we live in Haiti or we live in Nashville or if we live in the nation's capital or out in California or in Canada or in Nigeria or in Russia, we need truth. We need your truth. No matter if we're poor or if we're wealthy, we need truth. Your truth. No matter if we're Baptist, Methodist, Pentecostal, Republican, Democrat, Independent, male or female, black or white, young or old, we need truth. Your truth to set us free. We need your knowledge, for we know that people perish for a lack of knowledge. And in the church is one place where we can gain the knowledge of God. So, Lord, I don't take lightly this responsibility to teach your people and even those who may be watching and listening online. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who gave us this word as he moved through those who spoke and wrote the scripture and oversaw the process to protect the word and preserve it and copy it and giving us an opportunity to have it in our hands. We ask for the same Holy Spirit to speak now through me, to speak to me, to speak to us, to speak through us, and to give us the desire because you've already given us the power to live this out. So work in us, O oh God, to will and to do of your good pleasure. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This is an amazing book. The Bible is like a pop-up book, a children's book, a pop-up book, in the sense where when you read a children's book that has the images that pop up, you turn the pages, you turn the pages, and the images project, they, they come out. And reading the Bible is a lot like reading a pop-up book. It jumps out at you. When, as our sister Donna said, we put our noses in the book. The thing about a pop-up book is that some people may think they got gypped when they get one because when they open the book up, nothing pops out on the first page. That's the title page. They open the second page, turn to the second page, nothing jumps up. That's the table of contents, and they think they got gypped, and they're ready to put the book down. But if you keep on turning, it will come alive. The Bible talks about finding wisdom. It's like digging for precious silver, precious metal. You don't find it on the first scoop with the shovel. You have to keep digging, keep digging, and eventually you will find that which you've been looking for. And when we think about the Bible, how it's a living book from a living God that gives us a living hope, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, the story of Scripture is about God choosing a nation called Israel through whom he sent his son, Jesus, to save people from every nation. Let me say that one more time. The story of the Bible is about God choosing the nation of Israel 
through whom he would send his son Jesus to save people from every nation from their sin. The underlying stories of scripture tell of the conflicts that man has with God and that man has with man. And when it comes to Israel, the nation whom, through whom the Savior came and will come again, the Bible reveals conflicts that existed between Israel and God. We know that God wrote this book because it doesn't put men and women in flattering lights all the time. It exposes brokenness that is even found in what we would call the patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so this book reveals conflicts that existed between the Jews and God. This book also reveals conflicts that exist between Jews and Jews between Jews and Egyptians, between Jews and Canaanites. Conflicts abound in this book. This book talks about wars that occurred between the Jews and the Moabites, between the Jews and the Edomites, conflicts between the Jews and the Philistines, between the Jews and the Assyrians, between Israel and Babylon, between the Jews and the Greeks, Conflicts between the Jews and the Romans, between the Jews and the, the Samaritans, and conflicts that the Jews had even with Jesus. And speaking of Jesus, his gospel is the only cure for all things hostile. So when we think about all the conflicts that abound as we read the scripture, as we look at our own lives and even the wars that occur within our hearts that are fallen, the only cure for all things hostile is the gospel. Ephesians 2.14 says, for he, speaking of Jesus, he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility. So the Bible has so many good endings, but it's not a fairy tale book. It tells the truth about breakups and even makeups. This book tells it like it really is, so that when people are going through things in the nasty here and now, they can read stories and relate with those things that were happening then because there's nothing new under the sun. There was conflict that abounded in the scripture, and that's how it is in our world. And Jesus, his gospel is the only way to break down walls between Jew and Gentile, to put away the hostility, and even create out of the two enemies one new person in him. Time magazine recently uh, put out an article, and I want to thank Narciss Cheatham for making this known to me. The article is entitled, What Martin Luther King Jr. Said About Walls During His 1964 Visit to Berlin. Because these walls that are between Jew and Gentile, between men and women, these walls, Christ came to knock the walls down. And as people are wanting to quote Dr. King right now and bring up a lot of his nice things that he said, without maybe examining his whole body of work, I thought I'd 
read something to you that doesn't always get heard next to I have a dream. And Dr. King said during that visit in 1964 to Berlin, he said, it is indeed an honor to be in this city, which stands as a symbol of the divisions of men on the face of the earth. For here on either side of the wall are God's children, and no man-made barrier can obliterate that fact. Whether it be east or west, men and women search for meaning, hope for fulfillment, yearn for faith in something beyond themselves, and cry desperately for love and community to support them in this pilgrim journey. He talked about the similarities shared by the clash between African Americans and white people in the United States, and that between communism and democracy in Berlin, which he described as the hub around which turns the wheel of history. Just as America is proving to be the testing ground of races living together in spite of their differences, you are testing the possibility of coexistence for the two ideologies which now compete for world dominance. Quoting Ephesians, Dr. King spoke of his assumption that wherever reconciliation is taking place, wherever men are breaking down the dividing walls of hostility which separate them from their brothers, there Christ continues to perform his ministry of reconciliation. Dr. King preached the gospel, and he preached the gospel of reconciliation. Dr. King preached from the Bible regardless of what critics want to say today. Uh, the New Testament word reconciliation means to change from being enemies to being friends again. The word reconciliation in the New Testament, it means to change from being enemies to being friends again. The cross of Jesus Christ is what reconciles us back to God to be friends of God and then reconciles us to one another to be friends with one another. In the cross of Christ is the capability, really the only true capability, to make men and women right with one another because it flows out of us being right with God. So the cross of Jesus is crucial to any kind of people reconciling, yet alone people reconciling across racial distinct distinctions. So today in our message, What Racial Reconciliation Requires, Part 2, What Racial Reconciliation Requires, Part 2, we go back to our story that we began last week in Acts 16. In Acts 16, there was hostility, hostility between Jewish people and Gentile people or Roman people. As you recall, I won't spend a lot of time doing a lot of review here. But Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke were on their second missionary journey. They found themselves in Philippi. Paul casts a spirit out of a slave girl. He messes with the money of the men who owned her. So they decided to mess with Paul and Silas to the point where they seized them, stripped them, beat them, bought them before the magistrate, and had a trial that was unjust threw them in jail, and then placed them in the inner prison where their feet were placed in stocks. And so we talked about that last week, that race played a part because one of the reasons they received that mistreatment was because they were Jewish people. They were not Romans, they were Jewish, and the Romans mistreated them. 
so we saw from that that there were three principles to gain and reconciliation in the passage. The first thing we saw was mercy, because Paul told the jailer not to kill himself, so he was kind to his quote-unquote enemy. But also we saw humility, because the jailer came and fell down before Paul and Silas. And then we saw Jesus, because the jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? I, I want what you men have. And they told him, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So we looked at three principles, um, because reconciliation is not a formula. It's something to be walked out, and we need principles from Scripture to help us. Um, you can't cookie-cut this, but there are biblical principles that, when applied, they work. We just got to work the principles and not quit when it gets hard. And today, I want to pick up with what I believe are the final three principles in this story of what racial reconciliation requires. So if you're with me, let's see for point four that racial reconciliation requires, listen to this, washing wounds, washing wounds. Now, I know I'm speaking to the choir at Strong Tower Bible Church, but everybody is not in the choir as it pertains to understanding racial reconciliation. So as I'm equipping you with what the Bible says, I hope that you're able to take it and share it with your in-laws, share, share it with your outlaws, share it with your grandparents, share it with your co-workers, but above all, live it and apply it in the world so that people can watch you live for Christ. So racial reconciliation requires washing wounds. Look at verse 33 of Acts chapter 16. And he, speaking of the jailer, took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes or washed their wounds and immediately he and all his family were baptized so racial reconciliation requires washing wounds and so what I love about this is that this man who just became a Christian in verse 31 and verse 32 didn't need a seminar didn't need a conference didn't need to read the latest book on reconciliation. His newly regenerated heart, he didn't have to go to Sunday school. He didn't have to go to seminary. But his newly regenerated heart, he didn't listen to Christian radio. He didn't try to hang with the cool crowd. But his newly regenerated heart told him what to do. And that was to love. Why was he loving like this? Because when the Holy Spirit of Jesus comes into your life, he sheds love abroad in your heart. And the main indicator of a follower of Christ is that we love people. And so already the Holy Spirit, this power, was working in him to show love by washing wounds, which was a tender thing to do, a kind thing to do, and a risky thing to do. Because as he went into the jail that night, when the door is flung open because God called them to be open, the Bible says he called for lights, which meant that there were other guards there who could light the lanterns in the jail to find out what, what was going on. He was the chief jailer, but there were other jailers. That meant that they were watching him, and they watched him convert to Jesus right there. He didn't care what other people thought. He didn't care that by showing kindness to these Jewish men could cause him to maybe lose his job. 
because you didn't do that back then. And, and that's why they mistreated the Jews, Paul and Silas, once they found out they were Jews, because the Romans disrespected the Jews. The Romans were the world power at that time. And Israel was under their heel. And so for this man to fall down before Paul and Silas was huge, and now he's got the nerve to wash their wounds, that was risky. But he did not care because love takes risks, and there comes a time to be bold in Christ. He just didn't care. You got to do the right thing. You can't worry about if it's politically correct. You got to just do what's correct. And so he washed the wounds of these men. Now, where did he wash them? Now, we got to get out of our mindset, and I love what Isaiah is teaching our students to understand the time and the culture of the Bible as much as we can. But we come from a culture of indoor plumbing. But in those days, they didn't have indoor plumbing. So when it came time to wash or bathe, you did that outside of your quote-unquote house. So when he washed their wounds, he washed them outside of his home where there was this bathing space, an outdoor tub. Because later the Bible's going to say they're going to go into the house. They're not in the house right now. They're outside in the middle of the night, and he fills the tub that he and his family will normally bathe in in order to wash the stripes of Paul and Silas who had been wounded. So he brings them into this outdoor tub to bathe them, which is really what that word wash means, to bathe or to put them in a place where bathing is so that their wounds can be ministered to. And you know that the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus is working in you when you can bind up the wounds of your neighbor. Th that's who Jesus said. Now, who's the neighbor? The one who helped with the wounds, not the ones who walked by on the other side in his story of the Good Samaritan. So this man didn't even read that story, never even heard that story, but he's acting this story out because of what God is doing in his heart. And so he understands that although he did not inflict the majority of the wounds on Paul and Silas, he was part of the group that did. Can you hear what I'm saying right now? Now, he didn't beat them in the marketplace because he's at the jailhouse. But they were beat, they were caned in the marketplace. And the Bible says with many stripes, beaten unjustly. And even though he didn't do that, he still felt culpable and in some way responsible because he was part of the unit and the people that did. But not only that, he takes responsibility for the fact that although I didn't do that, I did this, and that is I put their feet in stocks. And I know that didn't feel good. Nothing in prison is designed to make a prisoner feel good. And so he takes responsibility for the wounds that other folk put on him and the wounds that he put on him. Now, I hope you can gather what I'm trying to say through that when people say, well, I never owned slaves, but are you benefiting from the system that slavery built for 300 years? You didn't own them, okay, but this society was built in such a way on the backs of slaves and to discriminate against slaves and to give advantages to certain people. And so when we come face to face with those things, at some point we have to stop being defensive this jailer didn't say, well, I didn't put them lashes on him. But no, he was part of the system that did. And so we need to say, okay, Lord, if we're really going to get healed and see some things change, this isn't about blaming, but it's about taking responsibility. Amen. 
And so he washes their wounds because washing wounds is the ultimate example of not only loving your neighbor, but racial reconciliation occurs when wounds get washed. Racial reconciliation occurs when wounds get washed by people who are a part of the system or a part of the people who historically have oppressed people. So if you're part of the people in America who have historically oppressed other people, other people of color, you bear some level of responsibility to wash the wounds that people have inherited from one generation to the next. That is if you're a follower of Jesus. If I'm, if I'm talking to people that don't know Jesus, then it, it, it means nothing. But the whole essence of the gospel is empowerment. The essence of the gospel is those with power coming to help the powerless. The whole essence of the gospel is the one who knew no sin and did no sin, but yet he was treated like he did, and he still served sinners. So if I'm going to be like him, somewhere I need to find out the people who don't have power and the people who are wounded. And that doesn't mean I don't have wounds, and that doesn't mean I haven't been wounded by minorities. But that's not this discussion right now. We're not going to center whiteness, which is what we're used to doing. Wait, white people will come to you. But first, from a historical place, if more whites raised up and said, let me wash the wounds, but to wash the wounds, you have to first acknowledge that the wounds are there. Yeah. Don't move your membership. Don't give up on me, okay? Just hold on. You got to acknowledge that the wounds are there which means you've got to be proximate to people who hurt. And they've got to be able to tell you about the things that hurt them and break them down. And this isn't all black people because we're not a monolithic people. We don't all feel the same. We don't all do the same. We don't all think the same. But there are many of us who have wounds, who are hurting. And there are many of us who don't trust white people. There are many of us who believe in a multicultural church but will not come here because they feel like, man, I'm always with white people all week long and I have to assimilate and I have to adjust and deal with white people. I want to go to a church where I don't have to do that and I can just be free. I understand that, but that's not necessarily biblical. Oh, my goodness. I always tell you, I, I try to cut with both sides of the word. Equal opportunity up in here. And so when we talk about these wounds, you got to acknowledge that they exist. Let me stop and pause right here for a minute because I know some of you have come in here and, and, and you're dealing with a, a tension between you and your spouse, tension between you and your children, tension with you and your boss, whatever. There's brokenness in relationships, not just between blacks and whites or whites and Latino or blacks and brown. There's more to it than that. But let me pause for a minute and let me give you something for free. In order to see reconciliation in a marriage, you have to wash one another's wounds, especially the primary perpetrator of the wounds. But usually what happens, the primary perpetrator of making the wounds in the other doesn't even want to acknowledge or admit that the wounds are in their spouse. So what he or she will do is deny the wounds because if they see the wounds, they see their sin. But they don't want to see the wounds because of their pride. And if they don't see the wounds, they can't minister to the wounds. But if you can humble yourself and get out of your pride 
And you can stop talking about what she did to you or what he did to her, but acknowledge what you did to him or her and start saying, I'm going to wash your wounds. I'm going to minister to you. But usually by the time y'all come up, I mean, by the time people like this get up in my office, people don't want to take responsibility for the wounds they inflicted in their spouse. And one person is sitting there wounded, and the other person is acting like they had nothing to do with those wounds. It sickens me to my heart. So I got to spend time acting like Columbo and, and, and all these private detectives to point out your junk in hopes that you see how you inflicted wounds on your mate so that then maybe God can touch your heart to humble yourself and minister to those places that you broke. Wash the wound. It's a sign of tenderness. It's a sign of taking responsibility. But as far as racial wounds, man, mine were reopened last week, just this past week, to see the officer who murdered Laquan McDonald by shooting him all of those times, multiple times. That officer only gets a little over six years of jail. And the other officers who covered up the, the conspiracy within the Chicago Police Department, nothing happened to them. It makes you wonder, do black lives really matter? You shot that man while he was on the ground. Multiple times, shot him like a dog. And you would have gotten away with it unless the dash cam had come out, which took over a year to come out. This stuff isn't new. It's just being recorded. This stuff isn't new. It's always happened. And so it's a wound to see immigrant children locked in cages. Man, it's a wound. To see families separated from one another. It's a wound. To see my family in Maryland out of work from a government shutdown that didn't have to happen. That's a wound. Dr. Mona Ivy Soto said something, and I agree with her. Yes, we need uh, border control, and yes, we need a pathway to citizenship. No one is calling out for open borders that I know, but most of the people I know think that this wall has really little to do about our security, and it has everything to do about our president's ego. And this wall is more of a symbol to white supremacy than it is to really, quote-unquote, protecting our nation. Yeah. To see a mob of white teenagers mock Elder Nathan Phillips of the Native people in the District of Columbia doing a March for Life rally. That, that wounded me when I saw that. And here come folk, well, you don't know the whole story, as if they were there. But they're so quick to want to defend white youths in the wrong, so quick. But they look right over this native man who, in the midst of this mob, continued to pound his ceremonial drum and sing his song as he's trying to march towards the Washington Monument to complete his ceremony there. He's surrounded and he's mocked. And people are already trying to defend the kids. See, let me tell you something. 
When I call out racist junk, people treat me harder than the junk I'm calling out. But I don't care. You think I care? I understand prophetically that's how it works. Somebody's got to tell the truth. I'm just one of many who will. And just this past week, to see members of our church, black members, passed over jobs that they qualify for to hire unqualified white people, they hurt when they talk to their pastor, and I feel their pain when they tell me about it. And they got Jesus, they read the Bible, but racism still happens on the job today in 2019. And they talk to their pastor about it. And all I can do is do my best, Lord Jesus, who binded up the broken heart. Would you give me the strength to bind up the broken heart? First, I have to do is just listen to the wounds without trying to fix the wound. Let me just listen. In other words, there's a space and a place to lament before you try to fix. Because some stuff you just can't fix. You just got to pray, Lord, help us. But it keeps going on. And if you don't think it happens, you're just not proximate to people who get wounded all the time. With sermons like these, there's a reason why we don't have as many white people in our church as we used to have. Because they don't want to hear this. So they go somewhere else where somebody's going to get up and talk about stuff that ain't happening in the world. But I have a responsibility to not only teach this book, but to shepherd the people under my care who happen to be black and white. And they come to church looking for a word. And the black church has historically been a place where they could get a word from God about the conditions of the day. It just wasn't three points of the poem and get up out of here. They need to know, help me preacher. And I'm trying to help everybody to see that, man, there's a word from God. The gospel does not change. The gospel is the only answer to bring divided people together. I remember when Martin Luther King had a talk with his daughter, six-year-old daughter named Yolanda that he called Yoki affectionately. They would go back and forth to the airport all the time. She would drop him off or pick him up riding with mom to the airport and to get to the airport in Atlanta, they would have to drive by a place called Funtown. And like any girl, she said, I, I would love to go to Funtown, Daddy. Can you take me to Funtown? But he knew that Funtown was not open to black people. And so he had to try to change the subject so that he wouldn't have to tell his young daughter, who at that time was somewhat guarded from a racist system within their home, but now she's being exposed to things. He, he's like, I, I, I got to guard her. I got to catch this plane. Let, let me change the subject. Well, one day he couldn't deny it when a, a commercial for Funtown came on the TV. And she said, Dad, I told you, that's where I want to go, Funtown. And Dr. King, who speaks around the world, eloquent, a golden throat, man, he's amazing. He said, I found myself at a loss for words because I didn't know what to say to my daughter about racial segregation. So he did his best and stammered through an explanation saying, Yoki, we live in a world where people judge other people based on the color of their skin. And some people have limited access or no access at all the way other people have access. But I promise you, I am working hard to make, that, uh, make a change with this so that one day you can go to Fun World. And as he said this to her, 
he could see the clouds of inferiority building in her small psyche at the age of six. How come they don't want me? And we have to walk with our children and teach them how to love and teach them how to rise up in spite of the wave of prejudice in the culture. I've had to do that with my children. My son has been wounded at a Christian company that he worked for. Called the N-word in a Christian company that he works for. And when I came up there to deal with the situation, the management was more concerned about the fella that used the N-word and talking about his brokenness and the home he comes from and the trouble he's been in as opposed to my son who had just been wounded by this one you're trying to protect. And I tell you, we were about five minutes from a march on this place. I'm about to call all of y'all up in there. Because the expectation is my son is supposed to be strong. He can handle it. He can deal with it. But Johnny, oh, Johnny, Johnny made a mistake. Let's just, what about my son? What about my daughter who's at the state fair with her friends, black and white, and gets called a nigger while walking to the car from white men in a car? And that happened her junior year in high school, and she's still dealing with that trauma today. And she writes papers in college about the night somebody called her a nigger. It frightened her. That's a wound she does not need to hear. You know, um, um, you'll be all right. Uh, You'll get over it. It's a wound. I know you didn't do it, but how do you tend to it? She's been around us long enough in Strong Tower to know that all white people ain't like this, and I hope you've been around to know that all black people ain't like this because experience has given you another lens to look through and judge these situations that happen, but they still hurt. It's a wound. We've been wounded because we're darker, and people call us names. Even our own people wound us. You light skin, you get wounded by dark skin. You dark skin, you get, man, why do we wound each other like this? Because we're broken and we need Jesus. We're broken and we need Jesus. The church is to be the place where lamentation and healing takes place. Christ's gospel is the only cure for all things hostile. Thank God for this jailer who washed the wounds of this man of God and his associate. But let me move quickly to the second or the fifth point. Racial reconciliation requires fellowship. Verse 34, now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. So he's not only washing their wounds, he's bringing them into his house which again is unheard of for a jailer to do, to bring prisoners into your house, to bring Jewish prisoners into your Gentile house. And not only bring them in, but set a meal before them. Again, nobody told him to do that except the Holy Spirit. And he's trying to show kindness to men who were formerly his enemies, but now are his 
brothers. The Holy Spirit can do amazing work. And he's got to figure out, man, how, how do I, what kind of food do my Jewish neighbors eat? Should it be kosher? What, 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 what do I do? How do I prepare for them? In the Bible, we know that when you sat down to eat with people, that was a sign that you accepted them. Okay? Why do you think Jesus got criticized for sitting down with drunkards and tax collectors and prostitutes? Because the Pharisees were saying, your master is compromising because he's sitting with people who sin, which means he's accepting their sin. And Jesus had to say to them, look, it's sick people and sinful people who need a doctor. And this doctor makes house calls. And I'm going to where the sinners are, not demanding they come where I am. So I'm sitting down with sinners. I'll even be accused of being a glutton and a drunkard because while I sit with them, I may drink what they drink and eat what they eat because I want them to see that religion won't separate us and put a wall up. I'm here to love you as you are so that I can love you to what you can become. He sat down with the Samaritan woman, drank out of her cup, and the disciples, oh, what is he doing? He said, look, there's coming a time where people from the north, the south, the east, and the west will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. He was putting a vision before the people. Because if we can sit down at what Dr. King called the table of brotherhood, we'll be more civil when we discuss race and politics. And we can agree to disagree because it's hard to have a fight at the table. That is, some of y'all's families, y'all have fights at the table. But, but it's hard. <laughs> years ago, years ago, a strong white member of our church got offended by a black member of our church and left the church. I didn't know why he left the church. I called him. I reached out to him. He wouldn't return my calls. He wouldn't tell me anything. And I'm sitting there saying, why did so-and-so leave the church like that? Didn't say goodbye to me, just left. And he has been gone about five years. One day I ran across him in a restaurant. And we began to talk. Then we got back together again and had a meal. And I asked him, I said, why did you leave Strong Tower? And this man said to me, I left because I had been offended. I had invited a black family over to my house for meals. Again and again, we had meals. We had a good time. But I kept waiting for them to return the favor to have me over to their house, but they never did. So they would come over to my house, come over to my house. Okay, that's cool. But I'm wondering why I never got an invitation to come into their home. So I asked them, how come you haven't had me in your home? And according to this man, he said that those black folks says, we don't do that. We don't have white people in our house. That broke the man's heart. He didn't come to me because he knows I would have went to that black family and said, show me in the book how this lines up with Jesus. Okay, culture, whatever, and that's wrong. So that man left. This is real. So if we're going to do the fellowship thing, because we're integrated at church, we're reconciled in one another's homes. 
When you come to my house and I go to your house, you can't do all the hosting. I can't do all the hosting. If you live in a mansion or you live in government housing, there's still honor in your house. And man, I can come to your house, invite me to your house. Because when I eat your food, that means I trust you. He let him in his house. Who are you letting in your house? Have you ever had anyone in your house at your table who doesn't look like you? Who doesn't come from where you come from? Have you, with the love of Jesus, become a host and said, come on in? How do you like your Kool-Aid? Come on in. Didn't stop there, y'all. They not only shared a meal, and, and this just blesses my soul. The members of his house chose Jesus. And then the members of his house got baptized. This meant that the jailer let these new brothers of the Lord into his house and trusted them with his wife and children to the point where he let these men put their hands on his wife and his children to baptize them in the same tub that he just washed the blood wounds of Paul and Silas. Revolutionary. That's the gospel. Revolutionary. But it started when that man put his hands on Paul and Silas in a redemptive way after having put his hands on them to hurt them. Jesus changed his heart. Now he's binding up wounds in the tub. Now they come in the house and eat. And now the children and the wife come to Christ. Now they get baptized in the same water. That's the grace of Jesus. Oh, man, but let me hasten to a close by saying racial reconciliation requires justice. Not only does it require wound washing and fellowship, from this text it requires justice. Verse 35 says, and when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers saying, let those men go. Because they're thinking, we, we beat them up enough yesterday. They should have learned their lesson. Go, go ahead and let them go. Or that earthquake during the night scared them and said, they must be rolling with a God that's mighty. Let them folk go and get up out of here. Either way, let them go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. He's a new brother in the Lord. You know, he, he was kind the night before. But, but, but right here, he don't really know what's going on right here. So, so Paul's going to have to school him a little bit, all right? Uh, uh, verse 37, but Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, no, no. Indeed, no, no. I got something in my eye. No, let them come themselves and get us out. <laughs> See, you saw some lamb in Paul. Now you're seeing some lion in my brother. The kind of lion that, that will turn tables over in the temple. Oh, every now and then, you got to let folk know. Now, now, I'm a Christian, but that don't mean I'm a fool. I submit to Jesus, but I'm not your walking mat, okay? So every now and then, you got to know when to speak to these folks and open your mouth. Paul said, no, let them come down here and get me out. 
And the officials told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. What's the deal? Because you can't beat a Roman unjustly. You, you can't beat a Roman illegally. And we know that the whole trial, everything was a farce. It was a setup. Paul said, you didn't even ask me my name. You see, because I have Roman citizenship, uh, uh, I was born Saul, that's Jewish. But because I was also born with Roman citizenship, uh, uh, I didn't buy it. I was born with it. I also go by the name Paul which is my Roman name. But since you beat me and never asked about my name or my personhood, you just assumed and threw me in jail. My boy Silas, that's his Hebrew name. Sylvanius is his Roman name. He's got Roman papers too. Y'all fooled around and beat some Romans unjustly up in here. The, the magistrates got afraid because had Paul pressed that in court, then that meant the magistrates could have been jailed, beaten, and maybe even executed for beating Roman citizens unjustly. So now we're talking about law. Now we're talking about injustice. Now we're talking about the need for justice. And all of this is going on in this text. And injustice occurred. And justice is treating all people, justice is treating all people the right way all of the time. Injustice is treating certain people the wrong way most of the time. To do justice is to do what is right. To be righteous is to be just. The biblical words justice, just, justified, justifier, righteous, and right all come from the same root word in the Greek. And it depends on uh, 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 the translation or the context, whether you use righteousness or justification. But it all comes from the same word, the same root word. And all of those words, just, justified, just, justice, righteous, right, they're nouns, verbs, adjectives, adverbs. They, they can all be used in a number of ways in the scriptures. But a lot of conservative Christians that I run into, they only want the noun aspect of being just or declared righteous. They want the noun of that's what I am because of Christ. He made me righteous. He made me just. The just shall live by faith. I'm a noun. I'm a new creation. I'm a new person. I'm just. But you forget that just is also a verb uh, that talks about doing justice. So don't just don't say, I'm just. How about doing some justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God? It's not just about the noun. Can we get some verbs up in here doing justice? Oh, I'm just. I'm just. Oh, I'm forgiven. I'm righteous. Do something righteous and help somebody that's caught up in a system of unrighteousness. Yes, there is a time. Oh, I, I got to go back and say this. For, for, for thoughts that someone may think he's preaching the social gospel. Well, if your gospel is not social, it ain't the gospel. The gospel is John 3.16 and Luke 4.18. 
ministering to people in prison, people who are hurting. Jesus was anointed to do that just as much as he was anointed to die on the cross for sins, to hook us up vertically, but he also showed love horizontally. His followers should be the same. Because it's at the cross of Jesus that justice and righteousness converge. God got justice and sinners got righteousness. At the cross, you can't separate justice and righteousness. They come from the same root. And the same Savior died on the cross where justice was meted out through his blood. And the Father says, I accept his sacrifice. I punish my son for the sinners. And, my, and the sinners get righteousness imputed to them, giving you a new position. You're a noun now. But what good is being a noun if it doesn't lead to verb action? Do justice. Do justice. Find a justice cause and jump on it. Man, back in the day of promise keepers, men filled football stadiums, black and white and Latino and native, and they cried and they sang and they worshiped. Man, it okay, it felt good. But it didn't lead to any action in the streets. Because what good is another event where we hug and cry and listen to a good sermon but we go back to schools that are still deplorable? What good is it when we go back to places and we can't afford housing? What good is it when we go back to uh, job discrimination? What good is it if we go back and the elderly don't have access to health care? What good is all that singing, shouting, and crying in a a football field if it doesn't lead to action when we leave the football field? That's what the gospel is all about. Oh, my goodness. There's a time to seek justice in court. Paul could have, but he did not. There's a time to seek justice. And and as I close, I'm a descendant of people who much of our progress in this nation, as well as much of our setbacks in this nation, have come through the judicial system. Okay? There's a time to take it to the courts. And I have to say today that it was the court system that allowed my people to have the progress that we had, but it also brought about pushback as well. What do you mean? In 1857, a slave named Dred Scott was taken by his owner into a free territory. They stayed there for a minute. They came back into slave state of Missouri. Dred Scott says, now wait a minute, if I was in a slave in a free territory, that should make me free. So he went and sued for his freedom based on the fact that he spent time in a free territory. It went to court, and the court said, you're right. You were in a free territory. Your owner doesn't mind you fighting for freedom. You should be free. Well, people fought against it, and it went to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court ruled, saying that, no, a black man does not have access to citizenship like any other man, read white man, because he's not considered a man. A black man is a slave, he is property, and they voted and said, no, you are forever a slave no matter what territory you go into. It's called the Dred Scott decision. And Chief Justice Roger B. Taney said, the black man has nothing about him that the white man is bound to respect. So when the highest court in the land put it in the books, not only to say you can't be free, but you will not be respected or treated like a human. What are we dealing with here? That's systemic. That's negative. 
but God was still with us. Because in 1865, after a bloody war, the 13th Amendment officially abolished slavery. So we got free, not because of the church, but because of the courts. Huh? You know, if you sit around waiting for people's hearts to change and they do the right thing, you're going to be waiting for a long time. While I'm waiting for your heart to change, I got to take this to the courts. So the 13th Amendment abolished slavery, but it opened up the door for another kind of slavery called the mass industrial complex system, where slaves who had just been set free didn't have jobs, didn't have education, didn't have place to live. There were laws passed called the Black Codes that come from the Slave Codes that said if you found black people loitering, the vagrancy law of the Black Codes said you could arrest them. If they could not read, you could arrest them. Well, how can I read if I never learned? How can I find a place to live when I just got released yesterday? Well, it was just a way to, to, to arrest them and make them slaves again through the prison system that was also rented out to private businesses and to restore the land after the war. The laws. It helps us one minute, then it hurts us the next. I could go on and on and on and talk about the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment. I could also talk about Plessy versus Ferguson and how it, the court said that there is a thing called separate and equal, legalized segregation, but separate never meant equal. Until 1954, Brown versus Board of Education, led by Thurgood Marshall, they said we got to fight this separate but equal doctrine because it's really demonic. And so segregation was struck down in public schools, but not necessarily in public places. So then you go through the Greensboro folks uh, at the lunch counters rebelling against uh, segregated seating in Woolworths and on and on and on. And in 1955, after Emmett Till is killed, Rosa Parks is tired. She's sitting in the colored section of the segregated bus. And the rule was when the bus fills up and white people need seats, black people ought to get up from the colored section and stand so white people can sit down. And on this day, when that bus filled up in 1955 in December, uh, Rosa Parks said, I'm tired today. I'm not getting up. Now, other folk got up and gave their seats, but she sat down. And the bus driver came and threatened her. She sat down. She stood up by sitting down, just like some folks stand up by taking a knee. She sat down. They called the police. They arrested her. They booked her. But God is the God of history. And he allowed that moment to happen because a renaissance was on the way. Because that woman knew some folk as the secretary of the NAACP. She knew some preachers. She knew some powerful people. And in a matter of time, a movement began led by a preacher who had just been in town not long, just graduated from uh, getting his doctorate and took a nice little church in Montgomery. But the outside preacher, the, the preachers there, the older preacher said, they don't know you yet. They know us. And you know how to put words together. You're going to be our leader. So Martin Luther King became the leader of the Montgomery Improvement Association, and they organized a bus strike for 381 days to boycott, to not give their money to a system that would not give them respect. They walked. They, they, they pulled together. They did all of that 
to the point where the bank bus company nearly experienced bankruptcy. And the laws of the land was changed. Now dig this. Just because they say it on the higher level doesn't mean they're going to play it out on the local level. Because later we got the Voting Rights Act, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, to, to get us to experience what the Constitution said was already ours. So, segregation in buses was shut down, which led to desegregating other areas around the country. I close with this. I could keep y'all all day, and I won't. I'm sorry. No, I don't, I'm not sorry. <laughs> watch, watch how God does this. He's in control of history, just like he was and is with the Jewish people. He's in control with the native people, the European people, the African people, the American. He's in control. So the community wins that. And so now the buses are desegregated. And so the first day that the black community rides the buses after they've been desegregated, Rosa Parks is in one part of town to make this historic walk, and uh, uh, Martin Luther King is on another part of town to get on the bus. I mean, it's a historic moment. And when Rosa Parks gets on the bus that has now been desegregated, partly because of her efforts, and she didn't have to pay in the front and get in in the back, no, she could get in right there. When the doors open, the bus driver to pick her up that day was the same bus driver who had her arrested over a year ago. So don't you tell me that God does not work in the system and that God does not cause your enemies to be a footstool. Don't you tell me that God is not involved in your history. But if reconciliation is to happen in the church, we got to wash wounds. We got to have some fellowship and we got to deal with justice issues. We got to fight together. What good is racial reconciliation if it doesn't lead to biblical justice? Let's stand for prayer. Amen. Oh, boy. Next week, we're going to deal with that statement that Jesus made when he said, the poor you'll have with you always. What's that mean? Is that an excuse just to say, you know, folk going to be poor? I think it's deeper than that. Let's see if we can find out what the Lord is saying. I want to thank you. I said before, we don't have nearly as many white people. But I thank God for the white people we have. Because y'all are in it, man. Y'all are real. I appreciate you. And not every white person who left the church didn't leave because they didn't agree with what Strong Tower was called to. But a lot of them did. But God would bring you at the right time. Because I'm like, Lord, you gave me this vision, this experience of this diversity in the South. But white folks, are, they're looking at me like I'm the enemy and they're, they're leaving after I preach a sermon. And then God would bring in white people to say, we're here now. We've been looking for this place. Those of you who've adopted children of color, and you know they're cute in a lot of churches until they start growing up. And you want to bring them to a church where they can be in community with black people and see blacks in leadership. I commend you and I bless you. This is real. 
This is real, and I'm so glad and thankful to be a part of this. My phone has been ringing ever since we declared this more intense focus on rich and poor, economics, race. My phone has been ringing from people with children who are incarcerated unjustly. People are reaching out to me for other things, and I'm like, God, we're in it now. We're in it now. Love demonstrated. Justice is nothing but love with clothes on. I tell you what, man. Let's pray. Father God, uh, would you make us grow closer where we can share our pain? I'm even thinking, Lord, about white women in our church who have been attacked by black women because they've married black men. And that's a wound, too. And we must bind up that wound. <sighs> I'm so glad your anointing flows freely. It comes primarily from you, but it comes through us. The Samaritans received the Lord, but they didn't get the Holy Spirit till the apostles came there and put their hands on them. <laughs> In the name of Jesus, may we keep putting our hands on one another. May we love one another, and may we stand together with and for one another. Lord, we're not here to play church. We're here to be the church, and we know there are assignments that you have for us. And we'll look at what we have, which is limited, but we'll look at you who has no limitations. And we'll do what you tell us to do. We'll go where you tell us to go. We'll say what you tell us to say. We'll touch who you tell us to touch. All for your glory. Build your kingdom. We make ourselves available, which is a little scary, but it's also exciting. So I close this prayer with the prayer I pray almost every Sunday, that you would do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ever ask or imagine because of the power that is working within us. To you be the glory, the majesty, and the dominion and power now and forevermore. And all of God's people said, amen, amen, amen. Apply this word. <laughs> Apply this word. God bless. Go get your kids. Go get your kids.